Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. This one's mostly going to be about an email I received recently from Danny G. And I apologize, Danny. I didn't ask what your pronouns were. I don't know if I'm asking to uh, talking to a male or a female. So I just realized as I'm setting this whole thing up that I'm not sure how to refer to you. So I apologize. We'll just use Danny from this point on. But Danny hit me with an email that got me really thinking. And sometimes you get emails and you don't bother. I don't bother addressing them on here, obviously, because it's just something that I hash out with the person or whatever. But here she brought up some really good points and stuff that I really got me thinking about how I present my information. And there are a couple things that I, a couple sayings that I have that I use quite a bit that they had an issue with. So I will read the email and then what we will do is break down some of these and I'll try to explain what I was thinking here. I did ask for permission to share this and it's not going to be a combative thing by any stretch of the imagination. It's more like if one person got this impression, then there are probably others. Also, Danny seems to be much more attuned to the science side and the biology side of this stuff. I am not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a taxonomist. I try to make that very, very clear. I'm a hobbyist. I'm not an expert on it. So when somebody comes to you that obviously has is able to get a hold of papers, is able to read these papers and, and digest and understand what they say, you want to make sure you take that seriously. So here we go. I've been listening to your podcast since just before I got my first tarantula about 18 months ago. Her name is Favia. She's an A. Calcotas, and she says, hi. First, let me say that I love the podcast. The information is great. The way you present it is great. And I can really tell you're an educator. But there are two things that you mentioned sometimes that make me twitch a little, and you mentioned both of them in today's podcast. So I thought I'd finally email you about them, and maybe we could chat about tarantulas and biology, and that would be nice. So anyway, when you say tarantulas have existed for millions of years, so they must be good at surviving, you aren't wrong, but you aren't 100% right either. Tarantulas are an R-selected species. This is an unnecessarily complicated biologist speak for they have lots and lots of babies and most of those babies die. From an evolutionary perspective, this is a winning strategy because for a tarantula, babies are cheap and a female can afford to have hundreds of them in her lifetime. She only needs about 2.5, I forget the actual number, but it's around there, of those hundreds of babies to survive to adulthood for the species to continue existing which means that as a species, tarantulas are great at surviving, but as individuals, well, they're kind of crap at it. Fortunately, they have humans to look out for them now. The other thing is about power feeding. I agree with your conclusion, but I disagree with some of the logic behind it. Trade-offs between longevity, growth rate, and fecundity are pretty well documented in animals as distantly related as mammals, reptiles, daphnia, and rotifiers. Hope I said that one right. I would frankly be more surprised if it didn't work the same way in tarantulas, but slings are just so much more vulnerable than adults until their cuticles develop, so I think it's a worthwhile trade to make them grow faster, reduce their maximum potential lifespan, and increase their odds of surviving until adulthood. But anyways, thanks for making the podcast. It's great to listen to while I feed my ranchos. I know you try to answer all your messages, but there's no rush with this one. Keep up the great work. Sorry, I probably could have left the last part off, but I'm in reading mode, so... Anyway, Danny, thank you so much for this because it was one of these ones I opened up and I'm like, hmm, we got a lot to think about here. So what we're going to try to do in this episode is break it down a bit because I never want to put out misinformation out there. And I know what I'm trying to convey when I, I both of these things, she's right, or he or she is right. I, I do tend to say them a lot and there's a reason for it. But let's break it down. The easier one to start with, I think, for this particular podcast would be the one on them surviving millions of years and my point that I'm trying to make with it. And I do get the point here, what you're saying, and it does play into it's, – it's funny because my first reaction was – all right, I'm, I'm just trying to make it clear that they're not that difficult to take care of, that they survive in the great big wide world they have for millions of years, so we shouldn't stress about it. But 
I will say I use this one a lot when talking about slings, and that's where the issue could come in. And that's where I stopped for a minute and went, oh, that's, that's a good point. I need to think about this a little more. So let's address why I say it. I use this one quite a bit because bottom line, I think when people get into the tarantula hobby, they freak out. It's a new type of animal. We, you know, we've gone through this many, many times, the differences between what we're used to in furry pets and tarantulas. And when we first get into the hobby, we're constantly afraid we're going to kill them. We're not going to keep them correctly. Our temperatures aren't going to be perfect. Our humidity isn't going to be perfect. They're not going to have the perfect depth of substrate. They're not going to have the perfect cross ventilation. We throw all these things in there. We stress about it. We go nuts. We send out emails. We post on forums. Am I keeping it right? When in reality, they are incredibly tough animals. That's been my experience with them. I know obviously others have seen the same thing that once you start to get the hang of them, they're not very difficult to keep. They're very adaptable. They are types of animals that you don't need exact husbandry. There are other animals out there that you do need a day night cycle. You do need UV lighting. You do need a certain humidity range that's not so with the majority of the tarantulas we keep. So when I talk about them being alive for millions of years, it's to kind of downplay the complexity of keeping them, to kind of make people feel a little more comfortable, take a step back and go, you know what? You're right. They've survived this long. They must know how to survive. And if you look at some of the places they come from, they come from some of the most inhospitable regions on earth. They come from deserts. They come from places where it rains constantly and it's flooding and they have to go up into the trees. They have it's it's humid in some places, it's dry in other places, a range of different types of environments and many of which are not particularly hospitable. We also have the fact they've been surviving with human encroachment. We've seen evidence of some of them becoming more urbanized or being able to hang out in houses and villages and be able to survive that way because now their habitat's gone. So they have proven to survive for you know millions of years. I will stand by that one. But Danny brings up a great point and the fact that one of the reasons why they're able to survive is the fact they put out so many babies. I just had somebody ask me recently, they were looking to breed the Laziodora Parahibana, and they were like, how many babies could I expect? And I said, well, they can have 1,000, 2,000, even more. And they're like, excuse me? It's, they have a lot of babies, and they are from a region where they probably, the majority of those babies will not make it to adulthood. They will be predated on by other animals and insects, and they will be exposed to weather conditions, not be able to eat, starve to death, floods, droughts, all kinds of stuff. That means that when you have a spider that has that many babies, most of those, the vast majority of them are not expected to live. And that's a really good point. And that kind of goes back when we talk about sling rearing. One of the issues we have sometimes is we get a sling and the sling dies and we go through and we troubleshoot and try to figure out what we did wrong. And there are instances where we did nothing wrong. You have to figure if something's having hundreds of slings, some of them, physiologically speaking, are not going to be strong enough to survive. You're going to have the runts. You're going to have the weak ones. You, a lot of people talk about the fact that when the tarantulas first disperse, when you have baby tarantulas, they will hover around mom for a while, depending on the species, some longer than others. And then eventually there's that moment where they all disperse. They all take off and go on their merry way. And that's probably an instance where a lot of these weaker ones are devoured. Now look what happens when we raise these ourselves as human beings to sell into the pet trade. We're caring for even the weaker ones. So a lot of those guys probably do continue on a little further than they might have in nature. They, they're able to molt once they're able to molt twice but maybe there's something in them that isn't quite right so they die off so that would again that would point to the fact that they have so many some of them are going to be weak some of them are going to be runs you figure even in a litter of dogs 
you talk about the fact that there's a lot of times you have the runt, the per, you know the proverbial runt, the small one that isn't as strong as the other ones. That if with not human interference, because we all love runts. I mean, I know growing up on a farm, the little sick ones were always my favorites, and we basically nurture them and and allow them to continue to grow and mature. Where in the wild, it probably would have been kicked off mom's teeth because its other siblings would have, you know monopolize that it would have starved to death or been predated on by another animal and it wouldn't survive so we have those in our furry animals and our mammals it goes without saying that we likely have those slings that are weak so again this points to danny's argument here that in the wild yes they are going to survive they have survived millions of years but the reason they're able to do that is a lot of them are going to die so there is that side of it how Ever. I will say, much like in our example with the puppies, I do think because of human interaction when we're raising them, that even the ones that might have been sickly sometimes do come around and they're able to mature. There is that fact that humans are handling. But again, I think that also bolsters my point and the whole sentiment of that statement. The fact is, these guys will make it, even if it's only two out of 2,000. When we're in captivity, when they're in captivity, and I've talked about this before when we talk about the difference between, you know, what they have in the wild and what they have in captivity, because I don't think sometimes it's a fair uh, comparison, especially when you're talking about basic husbandry, because what are they not going to have in captivity that they would be exposed to in the wild that kind of changes the whole game? Well, they're not going to have drought. They're not going to have flooding. Those are hopefully, you know, the majority of keepers know enough to not flood their cages to the point where they have to scramble up to the top. You know, obviously mistakes are made, but that's not going to be an issue. The babies are not going to have to suffer from predation from other animals. That's unless you've got some really crazy setup in your house where you're kind of letting them all Lord of the Flies it and go together and kill each other. They're not going to have that worry of having to be predated on by other, you know, in some cases, spiders or insects or mammals. They're going to be safe in those respect, the respects. They're not going to have habitation loss. And in some regions, humans are what's killing them off, whether it be from pesticide, whether it be from superstition, whether it be because they eat them or they think they're pests. They're not going to have human beings killing them. Humans are actually going to be helping them. So I think what we see there is, yes, obviously in the wild, 2,000 slings are born. 2,000 slings are probably not going to make it. You're lucky if you have a handful of them make it to adulthood. Totally understand that. But I do think that bolsters the point that in captivity, we are taking away all of the things that require them to lay 2,000 eggs and to lay have 2,000 baby spiders. All of those things that are causing the spider to adapt to that type of procreational strategy to flood it with as many young as possible because they're not going to make it. It's it's rendered moot. So what we end up hap- having is a lot of slings. A lot. This is how the you know obviously how the pet trade works. You bring them, you sell them out there. So. I think in this respect, I stand by this one only because it, you know, again, it's the idea is they're not that difficult. You take out those stressors that they would find in the wild. These things are some of the most hardy creatures you can keep. So I do get the point. I see, and I maybe need more clarification from now on. I, I, I absolutely understand, Danny, where you're coming from on it. And it did make me reconsider the sling thing. Because again, if, if one that has that many slings, some of them aren't going to be necessarily strong enough to survive. So that's why some people you have these instances where they buy slings and they just die and then they get discouraged. And you try to, you know, I've always said you don't ever want to immediately jump to, well, that's what happens, slings die. But you know what? In some instances, that is just what happens. A sling just isn't strong enough to make it. So I do think I, you know, I get the point and I do think I need to be a little more cognizant, but I hope most people understand that when I say something like that, the point is they're strong. I've raised a lot of different types of creatures. I've raised snakes that you have to have certain humidity for. I've had lizards that you have to, again, to 
go back to the beginning of it, as far as what you need to set these guys up, for some of them, it's a pot of dirt and some moisture and you're good. They're tough animals. So that was the point I was trying to make. But I definitely get the other point that, you know what, there's a reason why they've survived millions of years and it's because they basically throw so many out there that a couple of them have to survive. So completely understood. Now, moving on to the power feeding. This one's going to be a tougher sell for me. I get, uh, obviously, and this is where it gets tricky because when I talk about power feeding, a lot of it's from what I've read over the years, talking to other keepers, my own experiences. You know, I've done some nothing scientific, but little experiments where you kind of take two different spiders, feed them two different ways, see what happens. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But I haven't seen an overwhelming preponderance of evidence, scientific or otherwise, to make me think that in the majority of cases, power feeding a tarantula really works the way that people say it works. Now, again, I think you have to start with the term power feeding. Power feeding was something that was done mostly in the herp hobby with snakes. You get a new snake, you feed the heck out of it. They Snakes, you feed them, they get to a certain point, they shed. They just keep growing. They just keep growing. They just keep growing. What would happen is people would buy these color forms, these morphs of different species that were worth a lot of money. And the trick was to try to get offspring out there faster than the guy that maybe had the other pair of them so you could sell them for top dollar and recoup your money back. So they would jack up the heat. They would feed them as much as they would eat. They would get bigger, 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 get them to breeding size. And then, you know, obviously you're shortening the lifespan of the snake there and a lot of people kind of came from the snake hobby and went over to the tarantula hobby and figured, oh, it works the same way. You take your spider, you feed it a bunch of crickets, you watch it fatten up, it molts, 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 you get a big spider and woo, we can show it off to everybody who can breed it. Same theory. Unfortunately, it doesn't always seem to work that way. Now, it, it, let's get one thing out of the way right off the bat. Males and females are a different animal, <laughs> not a different animal, you know, figuratively speaking, when it comes to this type of power feeding or feeding them fast, uh, quickly, because you have situations where there are some males that only live five years and the females can live 40. That's a huge, huge difference in age and longevity between those two. So obviously, if you try to jack up the heat and feed a tarantula, and it's, let's just say we're working with a male here. You could shorten a male's life considerably. I once I did an article on this a while back, and I tried to illustrate. I put up some graphs, which was a dumb move on my part because they were pulled off my site, used incorrectly as scientific data. There was nothing scientific about it. What I tried to do is take like your average tarantula, the female of twenty years, the male live like two or three, and show how that you are able. What I found is that through that sling stage, a lot of spiders through the sling stage, you can jack up their growth rate in the sling stage. And a lot of us do because we want to basically get them, we want them to develop that cuticle that keeps them from becoming dehydrated and becoming desiccated. So we try to feed them and get them out of that stage. And I have seen evidence that you can grow the majority of them up to a certain point more quickly with some extra heat and some extra food. But what I tried to show in this article was the fact that when if you took a female, we don't even know how long some of these creatures live. The hobby hasn't been a long around long enough and we haven't really studied the longevity of some of these species long enough to know we know there's a situation i think there's one that's like 40 something years old that was a b smithy it was one of the oldest ones i have one that's easily in her mid to late 30s right now a g porteri rosea so we know the females live old but we don't know how old and we don't know what the max old age is with people we can go all right you know generally speaking really healthy adults 90 years old 80 years old for some and obviously it depends on region or part of the the world but 
but you know, 80s old age, and then anything you know before that, when we start getting 70s, 60s, we start going, oh, they they died too soon. It's probably an overgeneralization, but you get where I'm going with this. With tarantulas, we're not sure what those ages are. We're not sure even from species to species. It's it's all a blur. So what I tried to do on the website is illustrate, look at, here's your basic female that's going to live, say, 24, 20, I think I had 24, 25 years old. I should have looked up beforehand. If you fast forward her that first year, it's usually the first year, year and a half or so that you can get the slings growing pretty quickly. You've taken off a year of life possibly. So you've shortened that period. We'll go, we'll say a year we've taken off her life. In the grand scheme of things, that's not a lot of time. That's you, There's no way to judge if she dies of natural causes at 24 or if that year in her life would have put another year on her. We can't figure out how that works yet. We've done no scientific studies on that. Now take a male that lives to like three years or so max and you jack it through that, you know, you, you get it to mature in a year. Now you've shaved quite a bit off the male's life. So I did concede in these stupid graphs that I put together that it could have an impact on a male, but on most females, the longer lived females, the ones that go 20 years plus, it's not going to be much of a big deal. Now, again, I'm going to start this going through my information, then we'll bounce over. Danny was amazing enough to send three papers along with it. I love when I love when people come with something that's like, all right, here's a different perspective, or I don't quite agree with you here. Because it makes me think and obviously gives me podcast uh, material. But when they come with actual data, that makes it even more fun. Because then it gives me, you know, more to think about. So thank you for that, Danny. So my estimation is, yes, if you jack up the heat and you feed them in a more aggressive schedule, slings, you can, you can, you can kind of fast forward the whole sling process. I found that with most species. I've spoken to even the species that I haven't had good luck doing this with. I've spoken to other people. Like, for example... I had a bee smithy that was a tiny, tiny sling. Took forever for me to get to up to about an inch or so. I talked to somebody else that lived, I believe, in the San Diego area that where it's it's hotter and dry. That the weather seems to be perfect for tarantula growth. That theirs grew much more quickly than mine. So there's indication that you can get them through, you know, the sling stage, juvenile stage. That's I will concede that. Do I call it power feeding? No, I, I kind of see it more as we're just feeding them what they can eat. I would assume in a wild slings are going to try to fatten up as quickly as possible to again develop that cuticle again develop size so they're not you know preyed upon by other insects and other animals around them just to, you know overall it would seem to me that that would behoove them to get out of that stage as quickly as possible and we kind of do the same thing however i do think there's a point where the tarantula hits a certain size and it doesn't work anymore so i have an example with i had two formictibus cancerities and this is not i want to throw this out there this is not a scientific experiment. This is not even close to a scientific experiment. This is just a little anecdote that I noticed with two of my specimens that were the same age, same general size. So I want to make it very clear I'm not putting this forward. Is look at this is proof it doesn't work. But anyway, I had two formictibus cancerities that are both around the five inch mark. For giggles, I decided I was going to do a little, you know, again, a little experiment and feed one of them more than the other and just see if there was any impact. So what I did was one of them I was feeding. Uh, every few days or so. And I was dropping a bunch of crickets, bunch of roaches, dubia. I fed her very aggressively compared to what my normal schedules are. And she ate and ate and ate and ate. And the other one I was feeding like every two weeks or so and feeding her slightly less. It, again, it wasn't something I was tracking exactly how much prey, how many preams I was giving them. But we'll say tarantula A, the one that I was kind of overfeeding, was getting a lot more, a lot more often. Tarantula B was getting fewer prey items, and I was feeding her less often. So here's what happened. Tarantula A eats, eats, eats for a few weeks, probably about a, up to a month, I believe it was, 
and then stopped eating and went to pre-mold. No problem. We'll wait for the mold. Tarantula B kept eating, 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 eating. Went through several months, about six months of eating until I finally went into pre-mold. They both ended up molting almost the exact same time. They were like literally, I'll say, three weeks apart as far as molting. So the one that got fed a whole bunch just had a much longer pre-molt period compared to the one that was eating consistently all the way through. So did that feeding her, did that power feeder really impact or decrease her longevity? In that instance, it did not because they both basically, her system went, we have enough, we're going to pre-molt, she took a nice long time. The other one continued to eat for months and months and months, had a shorter pre-molt period, and they both popped about the same time, flipped over and did their thing around the same time. So I've noticed that with a lot of the slings, they'll grow more quickly with this, and that's something that can be that I will concede absolutely. And I've mentioned that, that I'll feed the slings more often, I'll try to get them out of that stage more often. But for the majority of my species, I've no, they seem to slow down. I can't say that for every single one of them, That's and again, this is obviously not scientific, but in my experience and having spoken to other keepers, you're not going to get the same effect with the quote-unquote power feeding as you do with snakes. Because snakes, they just keep molting and keep growing. The tarantulas will go through longer pre-molt periods and you won't take a lot off their life. So again, that's where I'm coming from when I talk about that. I think a lot of people get caught up in this power feeding thing. And I think for a lot of people, it's because they get these little teeny tiny slings and they really want one of these big, beautiful tarantulas they've seen online. And their goal is to get them as large as possible, as quickly as possible so they can show them off. I totally get it. Obviously, there's situations where people are buying spiders that they plan to breed and they want to get them up to size quickly so they can get babies out. That's another thing. Again, similar to the reptile hobby. But all in all, I just don't see a lot of compelling evidence to show that it shortens their lifespan. I use my G. Porteri as an example. When I first got my G. Porteri, I didn't know, you know, I picked up a book on tarantulas that was pretty good, but it said, the book said you should feed them every other day. So for a little while, I started off, I was feeding them as much as much as I could. She fattened up pretty quickly Took a long time off eating, and then I got my first molt where I almost threw her away because I didn't realize she was molting. But after that, I found more information that said, no, you shouldn't feed them so much. You don't get that much in the wild. So I started feeding her less. Now, the th- thing is, anybody that's kept G. Porteri, they know they're, or G. Rosea, they're notorious for fasting for long periods of time. And I do think part of this is because of the fact that people tend to overfeed them. If you overfeed them too much or feed them too much, they will fatten up quickly and they will not eat for quite some time. And so there's a species that I would love to see somebody power feed one of those to adulthood quickly because they just don't grow quickly. It doesn't matter what you do. I've had mine in eighties. I've had mine in seventies. It doesn't matter. They're just not a very fast growing species. So that's where my background comes from as far as the tarantulas and the power feeding, I just think the, especially when people talk about it taking years off their lives, I have a hard time with that particular aspect of it because we can't figure out what how much we're taking off their lives if we don't even know how long they can live for. That's still a big question mark with many of these species. We're not, you know, take... Brachypelma smithy, for example, or Brachypelma hammeribe. We've had ones reach 40-something years old under optimal conditions. Could they go longer? Could they go 50? Could they go 60? We're not sure. So if you were to try to do an experiment with that, you're talking about an experiment that could take 60 years. So say you took a group of slings from the same sack and you divide them into two groups. And one group you feed every day, one group you feed every two weeks, once a month. I don't know. Maybe you have three different groups. You try different sizes. You could be doing that watching the growth rate 
for up to 40, 50 years waiting to find out, you know, which ones did the ones that were fed less, did they live longer? The ones that fed more, did they die earlier? It's a really difficult experiment to do. So that's one of the things that kind of makes me sad about it is I don't think in my lifetime we'll ever see an experiment that shows completely one way or the other, whether or not we can actually impact their overall life expectancy by that much. And then who's not to tell that if feeding them more early on doesn't allow them to grow or be even more healthy and allow them to exceed what normally would have been their lifespan because they got that jump. Because we talk about slings in the wild. I would assume a sling that's able to fatten up much more quickly probably has a better shot of actually making it to adulthood. So then where's the trade-off? And I think that's the interesting point is does fattening them up early actually allow them to live longer. There's so much to look at. So anyway, it's been a tough topic for me because I have, it comes up all the time. People are always interested in power feeding and I have my take on it, but it's not scientifically proven. It's not scientifically backed. It's from research I've, you know, put into listening to other keepers who have tried it in the various experiments. It's from my own experience. So when somebody comes along with actual papers, which Danny did, that kind of address this. And now granted, these papers, unfortunately, are not tarantulas. They're not. And that's, I've had people go, well, I've seen, uh, you know, that they can do it in spiders, in true spiders, true spiders don't live nearly as long. You could easily, I could easily see you being able to shorten, drastically shorten the lifespan of a spider that a lot of times they only live about a year by jacking up the temperatures and feeding it more. I could see that happening. It's just when you compare, it's like apples and oranges. When you compare a spider that lives for a year to a tarantula that can live 40 plus years, it's not a fair comparison. You just, it doesn't work the same way. So anyway, she's, he or she sent a couple articles that I went through. One of them was the effects of diet restriction on life history in a sexually cannibalistic spider. Basically, it was orb weavers, and they looked at whether or not restricting it caused the females to kind of change the way they would eat, to change the way they would forage and try to find food. And one of their findings was, was very interesting to me was they found that the spiders that were well-fed, the ones that they were feeding more than the other, the control group, uh, took more molts to reach sexual maturity with both males and females. Now, that's interesting to me. That's something I don't know how that would apply to tarantulas. Again, it's funny because when we talk about scorpions, they have a certain number of instars they usually go through. We never talk about instars with tarantulas. And somebody feel free to chime in on this one because I don't know the answer. I'm calling myself right out here, but I don't think there's a certain number of instars. I'm, I'm not 100% positive of this, but I believe that with tarantulas, there isn't a certain number of instars they go through. At least the females, they can keep going. I'm not sure about the males, if there's different instars that the males go through before they reach sexual maturity, but that would be something I'd be interested in hearing about. So please, if you have information on this, chime in. I'd love to talk to you about it so we can cover it more. But the idea that the ones that are fed better actually skip a couple molts is fascinating to me. And that's something that could point, if we could prove that in tarantulas, would show that, no, we are, in a way, shortening their lifespans by doing the quote-unquote power feeding or by feeding them a lot of food and, I'm hoping, increasing the heat because, again, it doesn't really work if you keep them cool. So that article was very, or that paper was quite interesting to me because I wouldn't have expected that. I would have thought they'd all go through the kind of same number of molts, the idea that the males are maturing more quickly and the females are actually sexually maturing more quickly. I guess it would make sense that if they're in a season 
where there is an abundance of food that they would fatten up more quickly and be ready to breed. Because the idea is like, let's take advantage of what the time's good to get out there and, and breed and, and procreate. So I guess it makes sense in that respect. But still, I thought that was a little surprising. The second article was the effect of dietary restriction on the lifespan of males in a web building spider. In this one, the paper found that food restricted male spiders survived longer than males fed normally. Now, the key to both of these, which I found kind of interesting, is they're talking about restricting the diets. They're not talking about power. They're taking the opposite approach. So they're not looking at what happens to the ones we feed the snot out of. They're looking more at the ones that are underfed. They're underfeeding them. So it's kind of the opposite of what we're talking about here as far as power feeding. But I guess you could look at those results and say a spider that isn't fed nearly as much could last longer, which conversely, you would then argue that therefore, if you feed a spider more, it's going to shorten the lifespan. I get where it's going, but I do find it funny that, and I find it interesting that in both of these, they talk about restricting the diets. And that's another thing that I've always wondered how we would, how would you determine what is the ideal diet for any type of spider or tarantula? How would you go about saying, these tarantulas should eat this or this this spider should eat this many times and should eat this much food at a time. It doesn't work like that in the wild. You can't really develop a baseline. Even in these experiments, I wonder what they came up with for the baseline. I should probably have read it more carefully and taken notes. But what was considered to be the norm? What was considered to be what the spider should be getting on average? Because I would assume in the wild, you're going to have times where foods of abundance. You're going to have times where there is no food, where they're going to have one of those restricted diets where there isn't enough to eat and they're not eating for a while. It's not like when they're in captivity, you have a person in there that's throwing in crickets or roaches or whatever it may be, mealworms every few days or so sometimes they may eat really well sometimes they may not do a lot of eating at all how do we determine in a scientific way what is the ideal and I'm not putting that out there to be difficult I really want to know where do you draw the line how do we not know and seasons where prey is in abundance and these guys could be eating two three four five times a week then there could be other seasons and other times where there's drought there's not as many insects out there there's nothing for them to eat so they're not eating often how do we determine what the correct meal is in that respect we're going to look at what was going on in the wild i'm assuming if we were trying to emulate that in our own collections the way to feed them would be to feed them a whole bunch and then not feed them for a while I mean, it would almost be like intermittent fasting where you're just kind of, all right, we're eating a bunch of food. And now we're taking a few days off. Or in their case, it'd be like, now we're eating a bunch of food and we're taking a few weeks off. That might be the more, that might more closely resemble what they would have in the wild. So I do find, again, looking at these type of experiments, I get excited thinking, man, if somebody did this, this would be great to find out once and for all how their metabolisms work, how we can, you know, how we can improve their longevity, whether or not the power feeding does shorten their lifespan. I'd love to hear that. But then the more I think about it, the more I realize how difficult it would be to put together a truly scientific experiment out there. How would you find that? I would love to hear what norms a scientist would come up with as far as this is the baseline. This is what your average spider should have to eat and then look at what happens if we feed it less, what happens if we feed it more. That's what we'd have to see. And the, okay, back to the articles. The third articles were basically body conditions, but not dietary constrictions. I'm not going to use the name of the article here because I didn't write it down, unfortunately. But the main point of the article was it looked at Latrodectris Hasselti and it looked at whether or not dietary constrictions could prolong lifespans. Again, they are restricting. All three of the articles, they are restricting. They're not doing it the other way, which is fattening them up. And in a fascinating little twist, they found that dietary constrictions really didn't prolong the lifespans. 
but they found that the spiders would actually, the ones reared closer to females, would develop faster at the expense of not being as big and strong as the counterparts that would develop more slowly so that they could breed with the females more quickly and beat the other spiders to the punch. So basically they found that males, you keep them close by the females, they're going to grow more rapidly. They're going to be smaller when they mature out and less powerful than their other counterparts, but they're going to get the lady first, which I found to be incredibly interesting. So again, the cutting the food had nothing to do with it. It was whether or not they were raised in proximity to females because they knew if there were females around, the opportunity was there to breed and they wanted to be the first one to spread their DNA to the other females, which I found to be incredible. And then the high diet males reared in the absence of females lived longer. So the ones that had the larger diet but were kept away from the females, so the ones that were fed more, kept away from the females, actually lived longer than the other ones. So it didn't impact them whatsoever. And that's the that's the spot I would expect with some of the males, especially with tarantulas, where we'd see the most profound impact on feeding as opposed to, you know, overall longevity. That's a spot I can concede that people have grown up mature males very, very quickly. I've had a couple of them mature in under a year, well under a year. I had a, what was it, a C. darlingi that matured, I think, like seven months or so. It was a bizarre, tiny little thing. But then I had another one that matured at 13 months that was much bigger. So that makes me wonder if it had something to do with the fact that this one, although this one was not near a female that I can think of, if there's something else going on there as far as life expectancy with the males, where if they sense the pheromones of a female early on, or there's females around, or it's a time of year where there's a lot of females, if that can kind of influence how quickly they mature. I had another situation with a T. ocrety. Now I feed these, my guys are all in the same temperatures, same general feeding schedule. First T. ocrety I had was a male. It was about eh, maybe four inches long, four and a half inches long or so. Small little dude. And I had another one at that time that was four and a half inches long that I just automatically assumed must have been a female because it would have another molt coming, obviously. It wasn't a male yet. And it was already the same size as my male. Well, it molted two more times, and this one ended up being closer to seven, seven and a half inches long. Huge difference in size. Same feeding schedule, same temperatures, totally different, molted at a totally different time, seemed to have extra molts in there, or at least put on more size. So what caused that? It wasn't the feeding. It wasn't the, you know, temperatures. What was it? Also, with the M. Balfouri, we had the males in the tank there, where one of them molted rather early on, I think it was around the 14, 15 month mark. I had my first mature male. The next mature male I got was almost a full year later, much, much bigger than the original male. Was that first one, did that one mature more quickly because of food? I don't think so. I think it's, they all seem to be growing around the same size. I don't know what caused it. So then we got to consider that last article really brings in other things. When we look at you know, growth rate and longevity, it might not have anything to do with food. In this instance, in this last paper, it looks like it has to do with the male's proximity to the females while it's in development. And honestly, somebody doing this experiment, I don't know if I've ever thought of this angle before. So say we were trying to do an experiment to figure out if we shorten their longevity when we feed them a lot more than say they were supposed to get in the wild that wouldn't take this into account. There could be other factors there that determine that a male molts more quickly to maturity than feeding and temperature. There could be other things contributing to that. So I thought that article particularly, the third one was was incredibly fascinating because it threw another whole, well, for lack of a better term, twist into the argument because now we we have to start considering that it doesn't just have to do with temp. It doesn't have to do with feeding. It could be due to breeding and 
the fact that the males are going to try to mature more quickly to get to the females more quickly. A lot, just a lot. That one really got me going because I'm like, wow, this is a totally different way of looking at it now. So where does that leave us? Well, again, I think Danny brought up some good points about the fact that, you know, I think what comes out of this is we don't have the scientific research on either side of this argument to back back it up one way or the other. Like, for example, there is no scientific research I can point to that says that, quote-unquote, power-feeding your tarantulas doesn't lead to much faster growth rate and doesn't decrease the average lifespan of the spider. I can't point to any research that shows that. However, conversely, there's no research that done scientifically that shows the opposite either. There's no research that says that it does cause them. And that's the other side of it. People will go, yeah, well, it works with other animals. Why wouldn't it work with them? There's no research supporting that either. The research we have here, it's talking about restriction. And again, I think that's important to differentiate because we're not talking about restricting their diets. I would believe if somebody told me now flat out, and I want to make this very clear, if somebody said said the argument, do you think restricting a tarantula's diet could increase its longevity? Yes, I do. I do think that taking away. So if we're talking about restricting, we're talking about, I would believe the definition of restricting would be feeding them less than would be optimal. So you would have the optimal line, which again, I don't know how we'd determine with different species and different locales what the optimal line would be. Like this is exactly what the spider should be eating to be most healthy. But say we could determine that. When you're talking about restricting, you're going below the optimal line. So that's another hold that really isn't comparable because we're talking about it, with power feeding going above the optimal line, we're feeding them supposedly more food than they should actually get. And we're trying to decide if it causes obesity, if it causes problems. And there's other, I should bring that up as well. There are other discussions around this beyond just longevity, which is does fattening them up, does it lead to health issues? You know, people have talked about obesity is obviously can be in many different types of animals. Is there obesity in spiders? There are people out there, folks that study them in the wild, that's when they see chubby tarantulas in our collections, think that that's a sign of an unhealthy tarantula. Are they correct there? I don't know. Then you talk about the fact that, you know, does it improve breeding? Does it decrease fecundity? Does it, you know, what does it do as far as, I would think that a fattened up female would be would have a better chance of producing a larger egg sac. But I don't know if that's true. There's so many variables around the whole topic, which I think makes it kind of daunting to consider that, you know, unfortunately, I don't know if we'll ever have our answers, at least in my lifetime. But on the other end, just get your mind moving like what, so many possibilities of experiments that people could do and trials to see if any of this stuff has an impact. I mean, personally, I think it would be nice to see at least some type of experiment kind of examining caloric intake in spiders, you know, working in the effect of temperature on that, I think that would be a place to start. But again, I don't see a bunch of people running out to do this because it would be such a lengthy experiment. Now, while talking to Danny and I actually went back and forth a little bit and Danny brought up the point that there's no way to determine either whether or not it might shorten the lifespan of a tarantula, but how do you factor in quality of life? You might have a tarantula that, you know, technically gets through that sling stage. It's healthier overall, but you might take some time off its lifespan. Another thing to look at. I don't know. How would you even, you know, do that? I just think it's one of those deals that until somebody can show me real solid proof that we can, I mean, I think the big one is, I think it comes from this. 
people hear about power feeding and their first reaction is, but that's going to shorten the lifespan of my spider. And that's where this question comes into play where people freak out and they start going, well, I don't want to feed it too much because I want my spider to live with me for, you know, for years and years and years. And I think they worry. So I think part of talking about the whole power feeding thing from my perspective, the overfeeding of spiders from my perspective is to kind of calm people down that think that if they feed their spiders a lot of slings, they're going to somehow severely decrease their life expectancy. I don't find that to be a case. I haven't seen any compelling evidence that would indicate that for the majority, especially if you're talking about the beginner species, the Fonapelma, Brachypelma, Gramostola species, those long-lived species that take forever to grow, I really don't see that having any impact whatsoever. And I think the majority of people asking are people that are new in the hobby that are starting with those. GBB, maybe to a point, but I found that mine slow down once they get older. Again, they hit a certain point and they stood the... The whole growth rate seems to kind of grind to a halt a bit. They slow down quite a bit. So I don't even see it with those. So I think with most people, it's not going to be a big deal. And that's why I bring up what I do about power feeding, that I don't see it being a big issue. I really don't. Personally, I just don't see the compelling evidence to show that it would shorten the lifespan, at least to a considerable degree of the majority of tarantulas out there that people are keeping. Some of the faster ones, perhaps males, absolutely. But I just don't see any evidence so far and i'd love to see it if somebody's got it and somebody and i hope this is something people chime in with because i have there's been a lot of discussion lately i've been talking to a lot of different people about tarantula growth rates and i've had heard some surprising stories about species that i would normally expect to be very slow growers growing more rapidly so we don't know everything yet we don't know everything at all i don't pretend to know everything none of us do there's a lot of these unfortunately as much as we love these animals there hasn't been a lot of research on them at least in this domain. So a lot of it's guesswork. And I think it's one of those topics that's fun to talk about and to debate a little bit, but I'm, it's just not something that I think the average keeper should be worried about. So that's where I'm coming from as far as the power feeding is concerned. Could there be a shortening of life? Yes. But is it to a large enough degree, degree to really impact? Again, do we we have to take into account the spiderling gets out of that spiderling stage quickly. We don't even know if it would have made it through the kit, that stage otherwise if it had, had a shorter or a longer growth period. And then even if we take what might have been a three, say a three-year growth period from to reach spiderling to say its adult colors, the juvenile stage, and we condense it to a year and a half, if the spider still lives forty years, how much have we really taken off its life? So I think the life expectancy is where I get hung up. It, it, it's not to say there aren't other things and. You know, again, I'd love to see evidence or at least an experiment to talk about whether or not they can become a beast. That's been mentioned a bit. Is that something that can happen to a spider? I always was under the impression that they ate until they stored up enough food to do what they needed to do, whether it be the molt, whether it be the breed. They keep those stores and then that's it. I don't know about the whole obese thing, but I'd love to have that investigated. So again, Danny, thank you so much for bringing this topic up because I think it allowed us to break it down and in a different way. We The restriction part is the part that has me thinking quite a bit. I can remember when I first got into the hobby, somebody saying they only fed theirs once a month because they wanted them to live longer. And I remember thinking at the time, like, all right, I, I guess if, you know, that's definitely going to cause them to live longer, but is that what they're supposed to get as far as like nutrients? Is that enough for them to eat? Again, it comes down to trying to figure out where would we come up with an idea of what is the ideal. Like we talk about humans, you eat three meals a day. You can talk about caloric intake. You're supposed to have 2,000 calories or 2,500 calories depending on your size. How do we come up with that for a tarantula so that we recognize what is both 
too much food or too little food. I don't know. It's very compelling to think about, though. But I do think, I mean, conversely, going the opposite direction of the power feeding idea, I do think that feeding them less obviously is going to extend their lifespan. When I first started getting slings, I fed mine. I fed them often, but I didn't feed them as much as I feed my slings now. I was feeding a lot of the little the little red runner roaches, the Turkish roaches, and they were really tiny meals and it took them forever to grow early on. And then as I started getting more comfortable in the hobby, I started feeding them bigger prey items a little more often and I saw better growth rates. So there's a point where you can look at it and go, all right, if you want them to live longer, you feed them less, you know, you feed them a meal once a month or so. I've spoken to people that feed them once a month. Again, I think it all goes back to the idea that there is really no right or wrong feeding schedule as far as tarantulas are concerned. Do what's comfortable for you. Tarantulas, again, are adaptable. I won't use the they've lived for a million years thing right now because we just went through that one. But they're obviously tough animals. They're adaptable animals. So I think if anything, what comes out of this, the message that comes out of this is reinforcement that no matter what you're feeding them, your tarantulas or how often you're feeding them or how much you're feeding them, whatever it may be your tarantulas are probably going to do quite fine. So anyway, Danny, again, thank you so much. This is, it's nice every time you get, you know, when you get an email like this, that you can kind of break it down, make me think of things differently. I it, it really, between the live in a million years and the whole power feeding thing, it seems like I need to explain it a little bit more, but I think part of it for me is I've been discussing these topics for so many years. I just assume people are sick of hearing me talk about them when they come up. So I kind of do the abbreviated versions, but you've pointed out the fact that I need to be a little more clear sometimes when I'm talking about things so that people don't get the wrong idea because obviously they've lived for a million years, but those little slings can be fragile, so they can be killed. And I, I never want to downplay the fact that slings can be a little more difficult than their adult counterparts, but I just don't think they're as scary as some people make them out to be, and that's where I'm going with that one. So that will do it for this one. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can find me on timesofbigspiders.com. You can find me on YouTube, where I desperately need to post up more videos. Just been really busy with the whole school thing, but looking forward. To it. Once I get into this house, it's going to be go time, and we're going to get going, so I'm just kind of hanging back for a little bit and trying to keep up with things. That's it for this time. We'll catch you guys all next time.